Hello, and welcome to the Talon University Podcast. I'm your host, Terry McDonald. I'm a lecturer of international relations here at TLU. And on today's episode, we have a very special guest. Prime Minister Kaya Kallas was kind enough to join us at the annual Symposium of International Relations. So I asked her some questions at the start, and then she takes some questions from our students. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hey, Mr. Callis, welcome to Talon University. Uh, let's start off generally. Um, can you tell us about your vision for Estonia's role in the world, like in international relations? What are your priorities? First, uh, my priority is Estonia. So, I mean, uh, knowing the history that we have, um, then, uh, I mean, when nobody knows about you, nobody knows when you're gone. And uh, that's why we have been very, very uh, vocal and outspoken that, uh, and we try to be necessary also to our allies. I mean, this, what we have done since we, um, uh, you know, fought our independence back in 1990s. And, uh, and I think this is uh, extremely important uh, that, um, that, you know, um, you are present and, um, and you try to lead the way also in this uh, crisis. I think um, I have been, I have managed to convince uh, uh, many of our allies and, uh, and I very often see that when I've talked to them, uh, then in two weeks time, I see that, okay, they're talking my talking points. Okay, <laughs> good. Uh, so I got through and even, even, I mean, with uh, some leaders that uh, we have very hot debates, but they actually make notes and then, you know, it takes time, but in two weeks, three weeks time, you can see that in the public statements, they have taken this in. So I think this is, this is great. Okay, well. There were also questions. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get, yeah. <laughs> because because uh, this is uh, very often that the uh, that um, when you go to schools, then uh, later on I get this uh, feedback that the people wanted to ask, but the teachers asked all the questions, <laughs> so I, uh, as we have limited time. So Don't worry, it's, it's like been carefully negotiated. <laughs> so on a related note, like our first panel today is about Ukraine. Uh, Estonia has been one of the most generous supporters. Can you tell us uh, why it's worth for Estonia to have this level of commitment? Well, again, it is very clear for us that Ukraine is fighting for their freedom and the aggressor uh, is the one uh, that is also threatening us. So uh, every, every weapon we send to Ukraine uh, is also weakening our enemy. So uh, actually it is making our defense stronger and that's why we have done this. Plus, I mean, this is just morally uh, right to be uh, supporting the ones who are uh, who are attacked or or weaker. In this case, um, I I mean, you know, neutrality can't be our position. Uh, 
uh, in, in this war. Uh, neutrality means indifference, indifference to the brutality and violence that is going on uh, in Ukraine. And, and the price of it, uh, we will know, I mean, the price of neutrality, we will know when we are uh, in, in need and nobody comes to our, our rescue or our help. Uh, and, and we wonder how, how is that possible. So, so uh, this is clearly um, doing the right thing, but also, uh, also fighting for our own defense. On that topic, can you explain what NATO means to Estonia, NATO membership, and what the potential of NATO expansion might mean for your security relationships? It's not expansion. <laughs> uh, every country has joined voluntarily. Uh, expansion is a Russian narrative. Okay, okay. NATO is expanding. And NATO is not expanding. Uh, I mean, uh, Estonia is a country uh, that when we regained our independence in 1991, uh, then we thought that we will never be alone again. And, and we have applied to all the organizations that there are. If we wouldn't be in NATO, we would be living through some really, really dark times right now, like Ukraine is. And, and therefore, I say NATO is a peace project. It's actually on the NATO's territory, there hasn't been any wars. Uh, so, so that is, but it's, uh, it's not expanding anyhow, because we applied to membership, and all the others also applied to membership. And, and we were happy to be exp exp uh, accepted <laughs> to uh, NATO. So so it is not expanding, it's, it's not the living organization in that regard. I'm happy to have my language corrected. You know, really, words matter. This yeah, no, is, uh, I, this is uh, I mean, how we, how we speak about things. Uh, um, uh, there's a good book by, I don't remember the author, but uh, metaphors we live by. Mm -hmm. And how we, I mean, how we change the words and we could also change the situations by, by this. Uh, and I, I really like the book and therefore I, I give uh, a lot of uh, attention to words. <laughs> no, we appreciate that here. Uh, some of our speakers today are going to be talking about the role of small states in international relations. Can you talk about how small states can maximize their influence? Every time when I meet a new ambassador that comes uh, to, to Estonia or, uh, or when, uh, when I go uh, to visit and, and meet somebody outside, then one thing that I ask always uh, to, my, uh, to my advisors is to put on the paper, on the memos, uh, the size of the country, like every aspect, so that I could compare how small we are, <laughs> really, and, and, and how much it means to us that they are talking to us as equals, although that we are like, uh, uh, you know, suburb of Paris, basically, <laughs> if, yeah. you, if, you, if you think in terms of size. Um, what is our role? I think uh, we, nobody suspects that we have hidden agenda uh, of, you know, colonialism or something, uh, you know, having a power over, over the bigger countries. And therefore, it gives us uh, um, a very unique position to be listened to uh, without uh, anybody, uh, you know, uh, being suspicious about uh, whether what you are really talking about. I think that is... Uh, the role of, of small countries. You can be mediators, you can be um, uh, the ones who are um, 
um, you know, you, who can be drivers. I, I bring you, I bring you one example. Uh, years ago, uh, we um, started to talk about uh, uh, such thing like trusted connectivity. So basically, uh, so that you know, uh, every connection that we have the other side might also hurt us so make sure that you're connected to friends and i'm not only talking about you know infrastructure but mm -hmm. i'm also talking about technology for example mm -hmm. and we started to talk about this long before uh, before uh, the war and uh, what uh, then resonated with the big countries also the global south and we have you know Tallinn uh, digital summit where we have launched this and 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 countries are participating um, uh, how, uh, why the countries came and, and, and really heard us was that uh, they didn't suspect that we, having, uh, we are having some kind of hidden agenda really trying to have the influence over, over everybody so we can be trusted in this regard what we are uh, saying. So, so that is a good example. Thanks so much. All right, well, one more for me and then we'll turn to the crowd. Um, on our overall theme today, Globalization has brought some mixtures of blessings and challenges, of course. Uh, some of those economic displacement, environmental issues, radicalization, misinformation campaigns, migration, are central themes of our discussion today. How can states adapt to this great unsettling and build secure and resilient societies? Um. Yes, that is also a very good question. Are um, we going back to the, uh, you know, uh, is it going towards another direction that uh, we are not, I mean, somehow deglobalizing? Mm. I don't think so because we are so intertwined. I mean, everything is. Um, uh, so. Um, I think the key is interdependence, and as I say, uh, interdependence with those who uh, you are really trusting. Um, also, a very good book by Leonard um, Cohen uh, called "The Age of Unpeace," also in Estonian translated. I I, I wrote uh, preferred <laughs> for this, um, uh, but uh, this is all about this. Uh, I mean uh, that we can't go back. That everybody looks uh, uh, just uh, to their own interests. Uh, we are uh, using the. Um, positive sides of uh, globalization, but uh, but how to tackle the negative sides? And and uh, the point is that uh, that make make sure that uh, that you're connected to friends, and and uh, we have to cooperate uh, regarding the big issues, uh, migration, for example. It is a vulnerability that Europe has, and uh, all our enemies know that, uh, so they want to use this as a weapon towards us and we can only tackle this together and so so um, yeah uh, these are uh, the ways to do it interdependence but though with those countries that you are uh, really sharing the values with yeah, thank you you should at least be an inspiration to our students with how much you're reading these days <laughs> okay uh, we had a contest to first to get to ask you the first question uh, we had Alexi Yes, one of our students from Ukraine. Hi, uh, my name is Alexei and I'm from Ukraine. Uh, before asking the question, I would like to thank you for supporting Ukraine in our fight for freedom and life. I mean, it means a lot to us. So now to my question. 
I mean, given uh, the experience of Estonia and Estonians in joining the European Union, what advice you can give to Ukrainian citizens on how to foster and speed up the process of entering the EU? What should we do as a nation? Uh, again, a very good question. I mean, uh, when I was a member of the European Parliament, I was also a member, or actually vice president of the Ukrainian delegation. And then, um, you know, the situation, it was 2014 until 2018 when I was uh, the uh, vice president there, and I, I visited Ukraine a lot. What I saw there was, um, you know, uh, not really uh, the same will that we had when we joined the European Union. And what I say by this is that you have to do some really, really hard reforms. Uh, but you didn't have the political will to do it. Um, and now I see this. I, I see this um, uh, like uh, when we, um, uh, you know, in 1991 uh, regained our independence, there was a strong political will, despite the, or, or the political differences or ideology, uh, ideological differences that we had between the parties but it was literally we were joining hands and and uh, you know this because that was the goal and everybody was working towards the goal so um, that was also uh, easier way to do the difficult reforms and I see this in Ukraine right now that all the political parties are like literally holding hands and we are going to do this and they have now uh, the political will to do the very hard reforms, getting rid of corruption, uh, doing the rule of law uh, reforms, uh, economic reforms, and even if the war is going on. And, and that is what I'm telling to my Western allies as well, that, you know, it goes both sides. It is the hope that Ukrainians have right now, and they have the will to do the, uh, the hard reforms. But if you kill that hope, it, you know, you don't get the reforms either. And the reforms and stable, um, uh, you know, European Ukraine is also in the interest of European Union. So it goes both ways. And, and I think uh, this is uh, what you are doing now. I think it's, uh, it's great and, and keep on doing this and pushing for the, uh, for the difficult reforms and, and, uh, and especially getting rid of corruption. That's the most important. You know, um, during this year, I've been thinking about this uh, as well. I mean, uh, um, uh, what we had to do in 1990s uh, was a complete turnaround in mindset. Uh, during the Soviet times, uh, because the state was, you know, the occupiers, uh, so stealing from the state was actually uh, some sort of uh, proud thing to do. You were like undermining the regime. But then uh, we, you know, got our country back and it wasn't any longer, the state wasn't theirs, but it's ours. So it's not okay to steal from the state. And uh, that required the turnaround in mindset. And Ukraine didn't do it in 1990, uh, 90s. So, uh, so we did. And, and I see that you have the mindset turning around now. So we should also seize that moment. Okay, uh, some more students with questions? Uh, hi. 
I'm Anastasia, I'm also from Ukraine, and I have a question. So what do you think about like yesterday's news that if Ukraine uh, will not like uh, have a success uh, through like by the fall, then Western will force Ukraine to start the negotiations, like peaceful negotiations with Russia? Um, Thank you. Yes. Um, this is uh, also my worry uh, that um, uh, that um, some of our Western colleagues are like, okay, we give the military aid now, we do this final push, and then you know if it doesn't work out, then sit down and negotiate and give away your territory. Uh, and uh, we try to show that this is dangerous. I mean, uh, dangerous because uh, they will have four years pause to gather their military strength, and they will try again, and in a bigger scale, because every appeasement uh, actually just strengthens the aggressor because it pays off. Uh, so, um, so far, uh, and what I'm, what I'm a bit worried about is that uh, when the war started, then I heard that, oh, we were naive, we should have listened to you. And, and now I'm hearing again that, okay, okay, you were right then, but, uh, but uh, we know better now because we are the adults in the room. And I'm asking that have you, if you didn't know uh, then and, and we tried your way of doing things, I mean, Minsk agreements, we already tried that. Uh, so we know what the result is. Why do you think that it works better now uh, than when it didn't before? Uh, so, um, and, and there's a difference also. Uh, okay, I can't say this. Uh, out loud, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, okay, let it slide. <laughs> no, no, I mean, uh, I, I, I can't say the difference. Uh, I mean, there's a difference between countries who have historical experience and, and uh, countries who, who don't have that. So also regarding Churchill and Chamberlain, for example. Okay, another student question. Um, hello. Uh, last week, Chinese director of the Office of the Foreign Affairs, uh, Wang He, visited Russia and met with Putin. Uh, we can see that China tried to be neutral during this conflict, but at the moment it does not seem to be so anymore. Uh, how can European Union and Estonia prevent the closeness of uh, those countries in the matter of war in Ukraine? Thank you very much. Um. Yes, um, China in this regard has been a, a disappointment. I mean, I, I read those points as well, and what they start is, you know, uh, the respect for uh, sovereignty and territorial integrity, and then they go on uh, going to the aggressor side, uh, and and this is uh, this is a big question. So, I mean, as I said. In this war, there is one aggressor and one victim. And uh, when China has also agreed to the UN Charter um, that says that uh, you should respect the territorial integrity and sovereignty of a country, and there's also a point that every country has the right to defend uh, their territory. So uh, uh, all the um, allies uh, who are supporting Ukraine by military aid are supporting the principle that is agreed in the UN Charter so that they have the right to defend themselves. If you go to the aggressor side, 
and, and give weapons there, that is actually going against these principles that also China has agreed to. And what is also worrying to me is that China, you know, sat down with Russia, but didn't sit down with Ukraine before uh, issuing this. So I, I understand that the uh, US has sent some really strong signals to China that, uh, uh, that there are going to be consequences if you do that. And I hope that uh, they, they don't actually uh, do it because it goes against everything uh, um, that they have also agreed to in the UN. Um, so that is, uh, but it is a great concern, yes. Another student question up here at the back. We'll get you next. Uh, thank you, Prime Minister. Um, so recently when President Biden was in, in Kiev and in Warsaw, I, I listened to the speech and um, it, the story that he gave was something that now we're very much familiar with, that this war in Ukraine, this is kind of a moral struggle, a, a struggle between liberty and tyranny, between democracy and dictatorship. Uh, bet, uh, I mean, I remember a phrase that uh, the choice is between democracy that lifts up the human spirit and uh, dictatorship that crushes it. Um, this is very convincing to us um, here, but now uh, we have quite a lot of data from all around the world that shows that outside of this, uh, the Western world and the glo global south, this narrative doesn't seem to be catching on. They don't find this convincing. Um, uh, there, uh, maybe the attitude is exactly what you called indifference, but uh, um, maybe the, the reaction would be, where were you uh, uh, when it comes to Yemen, Syria, uh, Ethiopia, and, and so forth? Uh, they see it often as a European conflict that, well, it's disrupting the world and, you know, just get on with it. Um, are we out of touch? I mean, if, if our narrative isn't convincing the rest of the world, uh, is there anything we can do about it? Um, yeah, so how can we convince uh, and actually get solidarity from countries like India and, you know, the, the developing uh, world? Thank you. Um, if you look at the um, uh, voting in UN, then two-thirds of all the countries are, uh, you know, uh, supporting Ukraine in this uh, regard. But um, uh, regarding the Global South, uh, what resonates with them is the uh, colonialization and imperialism uh, that they very much understand, uh, that this is the last colonialistic power that there is. The problem is that, of course, uh, uh, you know, in in previous, I mean, we all come from our history, and in their history, Russia was good, and and US was bad. Uh, so, so it's very, I mean, you tend to believe uh, those uh, that you share the same historical experience with. Um, uh, with uh, comes to um, the conflicts or the wars that you mentioned, then uh, Europe has uh, made huge efforts in, in those uh, uh, regards. Uh, I mean, uh, try to stop those. Uh, I mean, Libya, uh, there have been uh, examples uh, of it, and also accountability regarding, uh, you know, Africa, for example, uh, Rwanda and, and uh, you know, the, the tribunals there. There has been a Western effort, but it's, uh, I agree with you that uh, we need to do 
we need to do more. Uh, we need to do more convincing and we also uh, need to address the Global South more because it's very often so that, um, that um, you know, Europeans are overlooking uh, Africa, Africa, for example. Uh, we shouldn't. We even have thoughts uh, on the European level that we should have, you know, mission, like five prime ministers of uh, different uh, European countries go together to Africa and, and try to explain um, and, and bring this, um, uh, bring this uh, I mean, also explain this to them. And I've also uh, taken uh, the interview request, for example, I have a lot of letters in my mailbox uh, because I did a long interview with Al Jazeera and uh, they are very much uh, watched in Global South and, and, and I got mail uh, regarding that, oh, I, I see now. <laughs> so I think we have to do this more. Hi. Uh, I am an Estonian citizen who studied Chinese in Cambridge and also in Taiwan. Uh, I very much agree it is European conflict and it's nice also that Japan and South Korea also support because we're allies. But as you said and as the gentleman there, gentleman there uh, we well, in other countries the narratives are different. For instance for China it's very difficult to assess which side is right. So. Uh, because, well, of course, the, their connections with US are complicated and, and, of course, Russia has also colonized China before, so although they say it's, they have friendly relations, kind of, it's kind of superficial as well at the same time. But my question is, should we require it? And also the other parts of the world also are a bit, do the US sort of mishaps in different regions, Iraq, Ch Chile and all that, uh, should we require a change of perspective to gain sort of global consensus? Because otherwise, for it might be for a lot of for several countries like China that neutrality is sort of best course of action for them, either for their harm, their domestic needs or or that. Um. Yeah, but I, I understand. If you're further away, you can you can be maybe neutral. Uh, but uh, being neutral and helping the aggressor, there's a big difference. Uh, and uh, I mean, uh, what uh, I mean, I've heard before the war started. Uh, then I heard a lot of questions. So, what should the West do to de-escalate? And I was like. I mean, the West hasn't done anything to to you know make this situation in a way. So the only one who can de-escalate is Russia, um, and and now also what we hear is that okay, what should we offer them? So you know, oh, both sides. It's not both sides. I mean, one has crossed the border of the other and trying to grab territories of another country with violence. Uh, the, I mean, nobody has entered Russia. Nobody has even bombed Russia. Russian territories, and and uh, and I hear uh, so much. Oh, we shouldn't give them weapons that would reach Russia. I mean, uh, 
yeah, uh, or we shouldn't have weapons here that we reach Russia. But then, I mean, you have only upside of taking up the aggression because you gain. Uh, and and uh, I've quoted this times, uh, I mean, uh, that their tactic is uh, threefold. So first, you present, uh, you uh, demand something that has never been yours. Second, you present threats and use violence. And third, you do not give one inch in negotiations because there will always be people in the West who will offer you something. And in the end, you will have you know one third or even one half of something you didn't have before. Uh, what? Uh, and we shouldn't give them that. Uh, what uh, resonates with the global South is as well. I mean, if we allow this to happen, if aggression pays off, it serves as an invitation to use it everywhere. And that is also the threat to other countries in the world. And that is the threat to global peace. And why China is acting the way they are acting, I, I think they're making you know, very much notes regarding how the world really responds to that aggression. Because they have eyes on certain territories, I will not mention. Uh, but, uh, but this is, I mean, how we react in this case uh, calls on all the aggressors or would-be aggressors in the world to take note and, and proceed because nothing will happen to you. Uh, and, and that is, I think, something that we have to talk more about, uh, that it is the global uh, world, world rules-based order that is at stake here, and that is dangerous to everybody. Okay, we've got time for one or two more student questions. He, he has been there for okay. waiting. <laughs> We're trying to keep it focused on student questions. But yeah, <laughs> go, go ahead. to start my own defense industry. And uh, my question is regarding China as well. Because um, different questions mention similar aspects of this point, but is Estonia ready to sanction China? Because the problem is that Europe has been relying on uh, China, moving their factories there, moving a lot of the services that will cost a lot of money to produce here in Europe, are we ready to take that and bring it back into Estonia so we will have the less possible dependency mm. on the Chinese regime? Uh, we see this um, all across industries that uh, the, you know, also COVID already brought this up that you have to bring the value chains closer to home, uh, that you can't have it all over. What comes to sanctions, then uh, I have a principle that, uh, like when I was um, young, my, my father said that don't fight with open palms fight like this, which means that take one fight at the time. You can't fight with everybody. And, and I mean, we have one enemy, and that is Russia. Uh, and, uh, and we have to convince uh, uh, China that they will not become uh, also a, a sort of... Uh, that we don't need more enemies, that is my point. We don't need more fights because this fight is, is uh, bad enough. Uh, and, and of course we have tools and, and I know that US has also given very strong messages to China, if you do this, then this will happen. Uh, but uh, I will definitely 
definitely uh, I mean uh, for me uh, the the focus is right now on on Russia and trying to uh, make this war stop okay uh, student question here um, uh, thank you so much for your eye-opening speech and my question is about the studying Russian language and experience experiencing the Russian culture for example like going to the Russian theater or joining a Russian language club. So what do you think at times like this, um, what attitude should we take towards uh, these aspects like studying Russian? Um, uh, when uh, I was a student uh, and uh, we were occupied, uh, then uh, the only tool that uh, you know children had to protest against the occupation was uh, uh, was the language learning. I mean, I had all the best grades in Russian, but I I really didn't uh, uh, learn it. And uh, looking back, I think it was very stupid. But I was, uh, and, and not only me, but all my all my class classmates. Uh, so so that was the way for a teenager to you know express uh, a, a, you know her opinion about the uh, about the regime but uh, learning a language only makes you richer because uh, there is also a saying that uh, uh, your l language skills make uh, show you, uh, show the borders of your world if you only speak estonian then your world is as narrow as that if you if you see speak more languages then then the world is much much wider um, so um, and and uh, the Russian culture it doesn't it doesn't go anywhere I mean all the uh, the writers that are there and the uh, composers uh, everything uh, I mean the culture is there so I wouldn't I wouldn't really uh, be um, sort of protesting against the culture and the language as such. Uh, but it is true that uh, since the war started, I never had that before. Uh, I mean, that I notice uh, in Estonia, for example, that the, you know, the Russian science, we don't have, we have one language and, and this disturbs me. Uh, we have election campaign right now and it really, really disturbs me that one of the parties have, you know, the slogan in Russian. I don't know if they have always had that, probably yes, and I never noticed it, but this time I noticed and it disturbs me. Um, uh, because, and, and what we saw also in, in Ukraine was that, you know, people, uh, you know, didn't want to speak Russian anymore because of what Russians have, have done. Uh, and and therefore, I think uh, also uh, for Russia, um, culture, sports is also a soft power, a matter of soft power. So, uh, I mean, not casting aside the culture in any way, but uh, really not uh, allowing the performers to come uh, to Europe or or. Uh, or to show that you know life goes on as usual. Uh, nothing has happened. I mean, the the uh, athletes also d uh, in the in the Olympic Games, uh, if they are allowed to participate, it gives the signal to a Russian uh, population that look, 
we are, you know, equals at the table, nothing has happened really. And, and that is how they use this as, a, as a soft power. And that is why this is, uh, this is dangerous. So uh, I still recommend to learn the language <laughs> and, and uh, not to cast away or get, uh, the books, but, uh, but yes, all the um, performances, uh, culture, you know, coming here, uh, or to Europe right now, I think just is inappropriate. Okay, we'll take one more short question over here. Hi, I have a brief question about Finland. Uh, Finland uh, and Estonia have quite nice cooperation already, been going for like 30 plus years and before that even. Do you see that if Finland gets accepted into NATO, the cooperation will deepen significantly or just a little? Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, thank you. Um, I mean, in 1990s, uh, there was um, in Finland, you know, Estophiles, and, and there was a, a strong community also uh, looking towards uh, Estonia. And now I feel it's not, uh, not like this. I mean, uh, not many speak Finnish anymore. I speak Finnish, that is my secret tool, because it's like when we speak with Sanna, for example, and there's like everybody's like, you, you speak the same language. It's like, no, I speak the language that she speaks. Um, uh, but, uh, but that's my secret tool uh, when I was a European Parliament member as well. That, you know, Finns are like Estonians. They want to be, you know, not bothered and in their corner talking about the winter war um, there uh, in, in Finnish. And so <laughs> if you can also talk about uh, that in Finnish, then you're like part. part. But I, I think that we should um, enhance the cooperation much, much more. What we see is that uh, Finland is always looking towards the north and not the south. Like, we don't really exist uh, uh, for Finland. I mean, we had our independence day. Uh, the only neighbor who didn't uh, congratulate us was Finland. It's like, <laughs> uh -huh, hello, we are also here, but... Um, uh, but um, uh, regarding security and, and defense as well, uh, when Finland and Sweden join NATO, then um, the center of gravity in NATO will move uh, north and, and definitely it will increase our security as well. Uh, what uh, I think we shouldn't do is that the Nordics will try to do their own NATO somehow unit which is uh, which is not uh, right because uh, the threat comes from the east and 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 what comes to the sea that is all all uh, ours so i hope that our cooperation will increase uh, we have already increased the cyber security uh, cooperation and and definitely uh, you know i i also recommend the finns look uh, to the south not only <laughs> to the north Okay, um, we have a small gift for you here from the director of our institute, uh, Dr. Indrik Grauberg. Ladies and gentlemen, Prime Minister Kaya Kallis. Yes, on uh, behalf of Tallinn University and the School of Governance, Law and Society, I'm uh, really pleased to uh, have you here, um, Prime Minister, and being here 
us with today. And I have a small gift. Um, this is the latest uh, human development report of Estonia. You have it already, but you probably don't have um, a special dedication from the author, which is okay. here inside here. Okay. So thank you, thank you. Thank you. Okay, thanks for joining us on the Town University podcast. As always, we're brought to you by the Baltic Film Media and Art School and the School of Governance, Law, and Society here at Town University. For more information about our programs, you can check out tlu.ee. I'd like to thank our producer, Avo Ulvik, and the entire Town University podcast team. And I'd like for you to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next time. Beep, 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 beep.